0: Hello, and welcome to New World Coming, produced by the People's Forum.
1: Hey there! Welcome to the third installment of New World Coming, an interview series produced by the People's Forum. Today, James Early interviews British historian Hakim Adi, professor of the history of Africa and the African diaspora at the University of Chichester. In this episode, they discuss history as a tool for not just knowledge, but social and political change, empowering working peoples to govern and shape society. They also emphasize the importance of culture as an arena for struggle, not just for celebration, but a realm in which we can understand our humanity and confront the social relations of power. Finally, Hakim recounts the history of the global communist movement and why, contrary to what we are taught, colonized people around the world were attracted to and participated in the movement. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch future episodes and stay updated through our Twitter and Instagram accounts. You can also listen to this series on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy this conversation between James and Hakim, and stay tuned for more episodes
2: welcome to the people's forum there's a new world coming where are you going to be standing when it comes a political education interview series my name is james early and i am the people's forums moderator bringing you interesting insightful people from across the united states and around the world to talk about emancipatory projects social movements and alternative governance structures to neoliberal capitalism today we are pleased to have with us British historian, Dr. Professor Hakim Adi, a specialist on African affairs with a particular focus in his research and writings on Pan-Africanism and the African diaspora. But he is also a teacher, a professor, a trainer of historians, a very important historical disciplinary context and tool for analyzing the correlation of power and understanding today's problems and helping to envision this new world. Welcome Hakeem.
3: Thank you for having me. Good to be here.
2: I'd like to start with you as a historian, not just as a professional uh, undertaking, uh, but as a context, as a tool. for understanding how the world operates and understanding how it might be transformed into a new world coming?
3: Well, I guess the first thing to say is that, I, looking at my own history as a a child growing up, one of the first things I noticed about uh, history was that I wasn't in it. That the history that was presented to me was about the, great white men of property. Um, And to some extent that's still what's presented as the history. So, um, you know, people of African heritage are very often left out of that history. Working people are very often left out of that history and so on. So what is presented by the powers that be is a view of the world which reflects them and their interests. And the vast majority of humanity are, are excluded from that history. So, as a young person growing up, you immediately recognize there's something wrong because the world isn't like that. One of the things which is very important for me and for other historians is to, if you like, reclaim our history. That yes, we actually do have a history. Africa does have a history, Africans have a history, working people have a history. And in fact, most of the history is the history of working people, is the history of the people of Africa or the people of Asia or the people of Europe, for that matter. That, that's, so that, I think, is one of the tasks of history. And we still have that task. Um, you know, I work with a Young Historians project in Britain, which is made up of young people of, of African and Caribbean heritage, And one of the reasons why we established that project was because the history of those peoples in Britain is generally excluded. It's not taught, it's not presented. Presenting the world in its entirety, presenting history in its entirety, presenting the struggles of the majority of people in that world is kind of one of the most important jobs of history and historians. We look at the 20th century, what has it taught us? For example, it's taught us that the majority of people can, can govern, um, that the idea that only the white men of property can govern, that only the white men of property can have a state, that nothing changes in history, that there's no alternative. History has shown this is rubbish. That the 20th century alone shows that this is nonsense, that the majority of people can rule, the working people can rule, the rich are unnecessary, Uh, they can be consigned to the dustbin of history, and, and so on. That in itself is very, very important. It shows that there's an alternative to what is. Essentially, as I always say to my students, history shows that we are the agents of change, that it's within our power to change the situation that we find ourselves in. So history is very, very important, and that is why the powers that be spend so much time trying to distort history, trying to spread disinformation about history, trying to write people out of history, trying to say you shouldn't teach this, you shouldn't teach that, trying to put various things on TV or whatever it is. So for us, for anyone who's interested in understanding the world and changing the world, history is vital.
2: You know, one of the trends or tendencies I would suggest... um, particularly coming from the 1960s, uh, both on the continent of Africa and in the African diaspora across the Americas as well as in Europe, uh, is to focus in on one dimension of history, cultural history, uh, which has been a remediating uh, kind of um, psychological health uh, instrument, if you will, that has given us a sense of uh, uplift of our humanity and appreciation for our aesthetics and our historically evolved ways of knowing and doing. Uh, But often that has entered the arena of of what is criticized as identity politics uh, that separates the sort of spiritual or humanistic uplift from actually engaging uh, the social arrangements of power on the material circumstances of life. I tend towards the view of history that the evolution of multiculturalism in its first manifestation was a democratic rights question struggling against the hegemony of a monocultural view, that it was only European history or European aesthetics, and that everyone else should re-socialize themselves and inhabit uh, the models of that history and those aesthetics. The question then began, Came, uh, once one took that democratic step, if one did not continue to look at what the power relationships were, uh, it did send you down a corridor of a kind of ultra culturalism or ultra nationalism. But fundamentally, that was a democratic rights movement, uh, which brings, I'd like to, your thoughts on that and, and to tie that. Uh, into this historical debate in the progressive and in the radical, particularly the Marxist and socialist community, about the intersections of race and class, this debate of of that it's class, it's not race, and um, then we will get around to this discussion of racialized capitalism.
3: You see, for me, one of the key things is, today you could say, is the struggle against Eurocentrism in all its manifestations, the political systems which exist in much of the world, particularly in places like the US, Britain, and so on and so forth, what people call representative democracy, that that is the only system. So Eurocentrism will present to you that this is the only system, this is the only way of doing things, this is the only democratic tradition, and so on. So to, to struggle against Eurocentrism, in all its manifestations, is a vital question for people of European heritage as much as any any other heritage because it's an orientation in the way it manifests itself which which is opposed to change, which is trying to prevent change. So that's how I look at it. And, of course, it has these other manifestations in regard to history, in regard to various cultural questions, in regards to a whole range of questions that there is essentially there is one view. That this is the view. This is how things are done. This is, uh, you know, there's the view of the international community. This is what human rights means. This is the definition of human rights. It's, it's the definition of certain white men of property, and that's it. So you can't, uh, we can't accept that. The struggles that are going on in the world, there, there's also the question of, of, rights of the rights of human beings by dint of being human one could go into that in great length but what what is important in those struggles is that we all struggle uh not just for the rights of one section but we struggle for the rights of all there's like if i go back to the 18th century in britain there was a a one of the early radicals in britain was a guy called thomas hardy and he wrote a letter, he was a a comrade of Equiano, the famous African abolitionist, and he wrote to uh, a mutual contact of his, of Hardys and Equiano's, and he said to him, I understand that you are an opponent of the enslavement of Africans. He said, I take from that that you're also an opponent of the enslavement of working people. Because he said, I'm persuaded that if you're for the rights of Africans, you must also be for the rights of working people. Now I'm paraphrasing. This is the 18th century. That's extremely advanced politics. Some people today haven't grasped that. He understood that if you fight for the rights of one section, you must fight for the rights of all. And it's through fighting for the rights of all that we actually create the conditions to to enter into a new world and create a new world and so on. The other key thing to remember is that there's a struggle going on, or there are struggles. Uh, Humanity is engaged in a struggle. We have said there's one humanity, there's one struggle. Uh, But anyway, there are different manifestations of of that struggle. But how to always to unite these streams into a torrent so that they wash away all the rubbish and usher in something new? That's the big question that- It's it's interesting
2: and I think important that you bring up the construct of Eurocentrism, which uh, there is a tendency to exclusively racialize that. And I find uh, quite enlightening, Uh, the Cuban revolution uh, around the time of the fall of the Soviet Union started to examine uh, its historically evolved sociology Uh, which is a mixed-race proposition, and they began to do a lot of writings criticizing Eurocentrism. But it was not a racial criticism. Mm -hmm. It was why would a tropical island republic adopt the sociological frameworks uh, of a European uh, uh, homogeneous uh, evolved culture? Uh, while recognizing that what they did hold in common was the uh, mode of production of fighting against uh, the social relations of capital. But the social relations of capitalism has distinct sociologies, different language groups, different religious groups. Um, Now we know in this part of the 21st century, century the expansive perspectives about gender identity, so this sociology uh, has to be put in, which brings me to the question of this historical debate, again, about the division between uh, race and class, and for me, one of the most enlightening um, works I've seen is uh, your work on pan-Africanism and communism, the communist international, Africa and the diaspora, what, 1919, 1939, I think it is, yeah. and... Yeah. Um, which is based on uh, first-person testimony, as I understand it, from the various archives. Uh, I'm mindful that in uh, 1903, when the great, uh, ultimately, communist uh, sociologist thought to be the father of US sociology, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in in 1903 that the color line was the major question of the 20th century. But 50 years later, uh, in a new preface, he said that uh, something on the order, I still to think, as I thought, I still think today, as I thought yesterday, that the color line is A, not the question. But I've come to understand that behind it, there is something that motivates it and obscures it at the same time, and that is that a minority of people are willing to live in luxury at the great expense of their uh, fellow kind, living in misery and and destitution. And that in order to preserve this social relations, they are willing to go to war, Invariably against people of color, and my mind floats back then to 1903 uh, in *The Souls of Black Folk*, where he's talking about sort of the black peasantry, if you will, in the United States. But in the preface, he talks about all of the people of the Asiatic Sea. So he was looking at this intersection of distinct sociologies of non-European people, and where color uh, had been imposed as a dividing line. And I'd like your your thoughts on uh, that that framework or my interpretation of of Du Bois that I put out because it still seems to be a resonant question today.
3: Again to look at it from another angle um, and I mean one of the great contributions I guess to this question was that of of Lenin who you know wrote his famous work imperialism the high stage of capitalism where amongst other things he uh, you know he he developed the the tools of Marxism, if you like to the in the new conditions in the new era and so on and of course, one of the things that he pointed out or he as a consequence of that work was um that it wasn 't just a question of you know the world changing the world going through revolutionary changes where capitalism was most advanced, like in, in Britain or in Germany, or even in the US, that it might, he said, be broken at its weakest link. And its weakest link might be in Asia, it might be in Africa, it might be in the Caribbean, it might be any, anywhere. And the part of the, the, the summing up of that experience or the summing up of, that, of, of the whole experience of struggle, which had gone on for in the past period led to that conclusion as well as analyzing what's going on in the world and so in russia which was a an empire of both europe and asia it was very important for the revolutionaries not just to organize amongst the we can say advanced and in inverted in inverted commerce uh proletariat of european russia but also to organize amongst all sectors of the people the peasantry people in the Asiatic parts of Russia and so on. So unifying people uh, internationally and so on. And when the Communist International was formed in 1919, it also had that perspective. It's not just a question of organizing people in Europe, you need to organize people globally. Because That struggle in Africa and Asia is vitally important. So it's important that everybody is united, to go back to what I said before about fighting for the rights of all. That's extremely important. Now, of course, the the powers that be recognise that, of course. So so they do their utmost to create divisions amongst people. And one of the ways in which racism operates, which is sometimes forgotten about, is that racism operates to create divisions amongst people the majority of the population, the working population, on the basis that, well, if they're fighting amongst themselves, they're not going to be concerned with the white men of property. Of course, those divisions based on nationality, based on so-called race, based on gender, based on all, all range of things, of course, can have very real uh, consequences. What needs to be brought about is that people who are hitherto under this system, powerless to make decisions, need to empower themselves so they can become decision makers. When they they can become decision makers and when they can establish systems which are people-centered, not capital-centered, then these kinds of problems can, all of these problems can be addressed and resolved and so on. And where that has happened, whether it's in the Soviet Union or whether it's in Cuba or whether it's wherever it is, we find advances can be made on all of these issues. Issues of racism, issues of gender divisions, issues of national questions and and so on and so forth.
2: You mentioned Lenin and and it it strikes me that I I think it was Lenin on on the Jewish bun, uh, who uh, the revolutionary, uh, that Jewish element that was revolutionary. Uh, his line was, allow them their language and their religion. Don't try to obliterate that. These are historically evolved cultural identity expressions that do not undermine the common bond that that we share as human beings fighting against oppression. Would that be a, a of sort of accurate approach to Lenin's perspective on well, that?
3: But I mean, why would that, why is that an issue? Why would the question of language be an issue? Uh, you know, if we take the revolution in Saint-Domingue, in Haiti, what language did the revolutionaries speak?
2: Probably Creole.
3: Maybe. Maybe they spoke African languages. Yeah.
2: And they certainly were worshipping these African religions in, in voodoo as a, as uh, a, as sometimes a cosmology. Sometimes they
3: organized themselves on national lines. They probably right. spoke African languages. Right. It didn't prevent them organizing the revolution. So, These various questions can be used as a way of, you know, creating divisions or diverting from, you know.
2: Are they can be recognized as a potential powerful common humanity factor as the late Hugo Chavez, uh, who described himself as a mestizo of um, Spanish and Indian background, but then who noted that his grandmother was of African descent. And he called for a 21st century plural socialism based on the distinct historical evolution of different uh, societies holding in common the uplift of humanity but recognizing that there were various roads to that and this is where the role of history is formed of people's cosmological views their language and their religious views or other kinds of uh, ethnistic uh, factors, which are not in their genes, but is in their transition, their their socialization uh, over many many generations.
3: Well, the key thing there is summing up people's experience. What is their ex- what is your experience of the struggle in Bolivia, in Cuba, in the U.S., in Ethiopia, in Britain? Th- these experiences are going to be different, and they're going to provide. They're going to provide theory to guide people forward this is what we've learned this is how our struggles have advanced this is how they've been handicapped this is what we need to overcome at the same time there's a point of summa- of a summation of the struggles of all people what can we learn from the soviet union what went wrong what can we learn from china what went wrong what can we learn from the paris commune what went wrong this is the world's history Again, this question of one humanity and, uh, you know, one struggle. I mean, when we come to look at these big questions of, of of climate change, of environment, of war, of COVID, you know, how do you even solve that without the world being organized in a different way to the way it is? These questions of, of global inequality are kind of raising themselves, uh, you know, in a very pr- practical sense today, and show the need for, you know, for for a different world, uh, for a new world in which, in which, the people are the decision makers, and those who produce all the wealth also decide what happens to it and how it's distributed, how it's organized, and so on. So, these are all, <clears throat> you know, the the, the Key questions don't really change in in some ways. The question of empowerment and decision-making, I think, is like the key question which faces people. And using history to address that, our understanding of history and our critical approach which history gives us and the idea that we're all agents of change.
2: I, I posed and then veered far away from your magnificent work uh, Pan Africanism and communism, uh, the Communist International, Africa, and the Diaspora, nineteen nineteen to nineteen thirty nine. Um, talk to us about who these people were. They were communist, uh, socialist, radicals from different ethnic and cultural, and religious and linguistic backgrounds. But the issue of race and uplift of the working class was a crucible, a test case of challenge friction, uh, even as they t- try to have unity uh, for this left-wing uplift. Would, would you tell us about that work and what might be the significance of that work for this generation of global activists, uh, not only people of color, but women uh, and others who are struggling for with uh, whether they are emancipatory projects in communities or whether they're in, in nations or whether they are cross-national projects?
3: I mean, I think one, important aspect of it, and I remember, for example, it may be different in the US or maybe not quite so different. I remember when I was still quite young and I read Harry Haywood's autobiography, Black Bolshevik, and that was like a revelation to me, (laughs) Black Bolshevik, (laughs) which, okay, now one maybe takes for granted, but still a lot of people don't know that, that there were, okay, there were these there were these Africans and these African Americans and these Caribbean guys and these Brazilians, and they were communists, and they, were, and they had this view that the solution to the problems facing their countries and the world was to uh, the people should empower themselves and they should build a new society and so on. That even that is, you know, Im- important and emerges from that history. So, why did they? You know, become involved with this communist movement, this revolutionary movement. What did they see in it? Because you know, today there's still a lot of uh, we're still sort of living in the in, in some senses in a, in a cold war environment, where when you talk about I don't know about socialism, <laughs> you talk about communism. It's presented as a um, you know as uh, Marx and Engels said, as a specter, as something that people should be frightened of, uh, not as a condition for their liberation. So I think, as I say, just the fact that these guys, women and men, were, were intrigued by this project uh, is very, very important and very interesting. So why was that? Well, one thing was, one important question was the Russian Revolution. That they emerged in the period following the First World War, where there had been a revolution, not just any kind of revolution, a revolution where working people took power, organized their own state, and developed the economy in their interest. And if you read what these guys said, it's quite interesting because they said, well, this communist, this Bolshevism, if it's getting rid of capitalism in Russia, it's got to be a good thing for us. We might be in the US, we might be in Britain, we might be now. Getting rid of this capitalism, it's got to be a good thing. It might spread throughout the whole world. Wouldn't that be great? So this is their perspective that if it's against the capital-centered system, it's got to be good. Whatever it, you, don't, you might not even know what it's about. It's got to be good. If it's getting rid of our enemy, that's got to be a good thing for us. That's the first thing I think is very important. The other is... I think very interesting is that the, the Communist International, which was essentially the organization of communist parties throughout the world, had as one of its conditions that communist parties that joined it had to support and uphold and defend the independence of the, the colonists, the colonial world, whether that's Africa or India or Asia. That was part, That was they had to do that. No other political trend in the world of any kind had that principle as part of its criteria for admission. So that's extremely important. And then the third and related aspect of that is that the Communist International was an organization opposed to racism. Again, almost as a principle. And again, no other international organization had that principle. So it's, it's no wonder that many people in Africa, the Caribbean, the US and other places were interested in this movement, in this politics. And then, of course, the politics of the communists was that the only solution to the problems that confronted people from the capital centered system was to get rid of it. That was the solution. You couldn't reform it. You couldn't vote for the Democrats. You couldn't vote for the Republicans. You couldn't vote conservative or that. Was just you were just going to keep the same system and nothing much was going to change. You had to empower yourself, establish a new system in which you were the decision makers. That was the only solution. Whether you were in the colonies or whether you were in the U.S. or Britain, that was the solution. And. To do that, you needed to organize alongside everybody else in the world along those lines. And, of course, at the center of the communist approach to things wasn't the idea that you needed to kind of conspire, but that a struggle was going on. There was a struggle going on in the world between, you know, essentially the the rich and powerful and everybody and the working people. That struggle was ongoing in the colonies and elsewhere. And the task of the, the communists of the revolutionaries, was to assist that struggle, to try and uh, accelerate it and give it uh, consciousness and so on. So, I mean, that was the perspective. And then the other interesting thing about uh, people of African heritage in particular being involved in this movement was that it encouraged the communist movement itself to see the relationship not only between the struggles of working people in general in the world but the particular similarities between struggles against racism whether they were in Africa or the Caribbean or in the US or in even you know Brazil or wherever they are that there was something significant about those interconnections that those Pan-African, those Pan-African struggles. And so the Communist International itself, if you like, organized some of these um, communists or those who became communists or those who were connected with the movement along those lines. They set up organizations which were essentially organizations of people of African descent. Uh, like the International Trade Union Committee of Negro Workers, which had as its job the role of working with the Communist parties in various countries to try and address what at that time they called the Negro question. In other words, how people of African heritage could liberate themselves in whatever circumstances they were in, whether it was in the US, whether it was in an African colony, whether it was in the Caribbean, whether it was in Britain how did these how could these how could those people liberate themselves were there aspects of their struggles that were kind of interrelated in various ways so that's what was interesting about that whole movement and the book essentially traces those struggles those organizations looks at their successes their limitations during that you know, into war period. And if, and if we we look at some of the consequences of it, I mean, one thing is that we see that if you, you look at all the kind of key activists or many of the key activists of the 20th century, and particularly early 20th century, they're all communists. Or they were, <laughs> they're connected with the international communist movement. Nelson Mandela, is a communist. Paul Robeson the Communist. Langston Hughes, you know, All he's travel, a right. He's a support. Yes, he yes. travels to the Soviet Union. Right, right, du Bois, right. he's a communist. Right. You can go Claudia Jones, a communist. Right. You can go on and on. Either people are connected with the communist movement or with the ideology of it, with Marxism, Leninism in one aspect or another. Okay, not everybody, but a great a number of people were influenced by that. So Again, one has to look at that. Why is that? Why why are people why were people connected with this particular movement, with this orientation, with this philosophy? And what is its signif- What is its significance? So of course, the world has changed. The Soviet Union is gone, and of course, one has to have an understanding of what has happened. Um, others, you know, have taken a different path. China, and others, and so on. So, one has to examine that. Why is that? And draw the appropriate conclusions from it. But I think that the, the orientation and the, the struggles that people waged in that period, there's a lot that we can learn from them. And if we look at what we look at the US, just as one quick example, and what occurred in the 60s and so on, 50s and 60s, much of that was based on the conditions that have been created by those black communists who worked tirelessly, and, other commun- and others worked tirelessly in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s.
2: It, it strikes me in relationship to this debate going on today, certainly here in the United States, about uh, the criticism of identity politics that the period of your uh, book 1919 to 1939 looking at pan-africanism and communism there was also an identity issue that emerged within uh, certainly these black communists that was a radical progressive identity the african uh, uh, blood brothers uh, as as one example which was not a name brought by the the communist parties but one that they identified themselves even as they identified themselves as as communists which would suggest for us today that we should not look at this race class issue as two distinct tracks, uh, but capitalism actually manifests a, a racialized nature. It's particularly in the so-called uh, a new world and it, as it did within in the, in the colonial world.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's bound to because um, the, the way in which it oppresses people and because of it, its its history of of enslaving and oppressing people, and creating all the ideologies of racism to, uh, if you like, to justify that oppression, to and so on. So, um, you know, those that that nature of the capital centered system in, in some ways hasn't changed, and we're seeing it obviously with you know Black Lives Matter and so on and all the Kind of international uh, ramifications and, and connections, but you know the fact that uh, African American communists or the, the communist party in the U.S. celebrated whatever you know, Fred Douglas or whoever. I mean, why why wouldn't you? Or the fact that you know people are interested in the Haitian Revolution. Why isn't everybody interested in the Haitian Revolution? In in that sense, these these uh. Aspects of history or aspects of, of culture which are progressive uh, are are things which can inspire everybody. I mean, Paul Robeson is a good example. I mean, Paul Robeson sang, in particular. I mean, he sang all sorts of things, but he sang what you could say comes out of the African American cultural tradition. But I mean, he sang it in Wales or Poland or the Soviet right. Union. And it didn't didn't it wasn't that it wasn't inspiring to people because they weren't African Americans so
2: it uplifted so their this, humanity their 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 common this humanity culture with, is
3: the, yeah. the culture of humanity right. it obviously has right. its particular, particularity right. but it's you know it's everybody's culture it can inspire everybody and did inspire everybody
2: well professor Hakim Adi, uh really want to thank you for these uh, perspectives and looking at uh, history as Uh, not just a discipline to look back and to find a humanistic uplift but one in which helps us to illuminate uh, where we are today and how this is built upon uh, the victories that working people and racialized dimensions of working people and with women uh, have evolved to confront uh, the ills of neoliberal capitalism and to open up uh, new emancipatory perspectives about uh, A-R-D, New World's Coming.
3: Welcome anytime. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for watching this discussion between James Early and Hakim Adi. In this discussion, they affirm that it is our task to know and study our history and the history of working peoples around the world. History helps us understand the relations of power that undergird our society and our material conditions. And more importantly, history reveals the possibility of an alternative to the way the world is now and empowers us as the agents of change. James and Hakim also discuss culture as an important front of struggle, which like issues of class, race, and identity, must also be used in combination to examine the fight against the division and exploitation of the working class. Finally, they remind us that to deny or ignore the history of the communist struggle across the world, particularly the participation of Black and African people in the movement, will be a huge disservice to us now. We have so much to learn from a movement that attracted revolutionaries from all corners of the world. To watch future episodes of New World Coming, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, and Apple podcasts. Thank you again, and see you soon.